It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 105. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Well, you may remember a few episodes ago, I did my best to get through a segment about wine knowledge for bartenders. If you listen to that, it may have been apparent that I'm not an expert on this subject, but I did promise to get someone who is an expert. And this week, I have a kick-ass guest. It's Elizabeth Schneider from the Wine for Normal People podcast. She's a real expert on this subject. So I encourage you all to subscribe to her podcast. And uh, if you want to get really in-depth, really uh, geeky, as she says, you can go to her website and sign up for a live class with Elizabeth, live online class. And uh, that's her website's wineformnormalpeople.com. So check that out. Elizabeth and I talked for almost an hour and a half, so I cut this down a bit uh, for the podcast. But if you go to my website, bartenderjourney.net, you can listen to the full-length show if you're interested. And I hope you will be interested because it's a fascinating subject. Wine is, uh, there's a lot to learn, a lot to learn about <laughs> wine. Elizabeth knows uh, more in her little pinky than I'll ever know. So, uh, oh, and the fun part was we did a dual podcast, so our talk will be on her uh, on her podcast too with a little d- different formatting, you know. Her listeners had some questions for the bartender, for me, and uh, and some of them were kind of pointed questions too, I might add. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, yeah, we go kind of back and forth with the questions, which was a lot of fun. Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my favorite cocktail book of the week. It's Death & Company, Modern Classic Cocktails. Death & Company was one of the first super high-end cocktail bars to uh, come to the East Village in Manhattan, and it's, a, uh, it's an awesome bar, and they've written a great book. Of course, there's cocktail recipes, but there's also detailed information about everything from garnishes to the how and why of making great cocktails. There's a section on how to taste, which is great, and it's something that I'm actively looking to improve personally. There's a fun section on the vocabulary that they use behind the bar at Death & Company. Vano and I did a show a long time ago called The Secret Language of Bartenders. I'll put a link to that in the show notes this week. Remember, the website is bartenderjourney.net, and if you buy the Death & Company book through that link on my webpage, you'll be helping to support the show a little bit. I haven't asked in a long time, but there's also a tip cup page on bartenderjourney.net, and uh, you know it costs money to produce this show. It's almost time to renew the podcast hosting subscription, which is... Uh, cost a bunch of money. So uh, if you guys can help out with a small tip or by clicking through and buying something from one of the links on bartenderjourney.net, it would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Cheers. All right, it's time to talk wine with Elizabeth Schneider. Well, Elizabeth Schneider from Wine for Normal People, thank you so much for coming on my show. Well, Brian Weber from <laughs> The Bartender's Journey, thank you for coming on my show. Yeah, we're doing a dual podcast, dueling podcast, like dueling banjos here. So kind we, of. I don't know how to play the banjo, do you? <laughs> I play guitar. <laughs> so I bet you could play the banjo. Uh, maybe. You're Just... very talented. <laughs> I don't even know you. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, music and such things, you're already you're wine for normal people, but you're my favorite uh, wine person because your favorite band is the Beastie Boys. So, well, how could it not be? Right? For that very reason, you have a loyal fan in me forever. Oh my gosh, R.I.P. MCA. <laughs> MCA. Right? Mm. Oh, so sad. So I you know. love the Beasties too? I didn't even know. Yeah, that. yeah. Did you did you did you see that video of uh, what's his name from Coldplay doing a tribute to MCA? Uh, no, but I it was uh, it funny? No, it was sad and it was beautiful. It was um, Oh, it was beautiful. Okay. I I was, love that. You got to you got to fight for your right is. to party and it's just him on on Guitar, a piano. Piano. And it's All right. awesome. I love him, so that'll work too. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you are a certified sommelier, which, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell people exactly what that is? Sure. Well, so there is one thing I will say is that the wine world is certification crazy. Is it Mm. like that in the spirits world? No, No, not at all. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank goodness, because the wine world is certification crazy, and I do believe it's a bit of a pyramid scheme, which is why Mm. I don't really choose to go any farther in the pyramid scheme but basically what the certified sommelier is is there's a certification body called the court of master sommeliers which (laughs) began in the uk and since has come to the us and many other places where there are wine interested people who are willing to shell out thousands of dollars to mm-hmm. get a, get certifications. Right. And basically, you know, just there's an intro level, there's certified sommelier and then there's an advanced sommelier and a master sommelier <laughs> and the master sommelier is ridiculous and <laughs> and very few people in 200 people or 250 people in the world have that qualification and I'm yeah. sort of the second level, but 
don't choose to go any farther because I don't really feel like doing that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you mentioned blind tasting. I want to talk about that later because I like your uh, philosophy on that a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. I got a lot of theories about wine. I, don't, I think I'm probably, you know, the podcast is called Wine for Normal People for a reason. I, I, I had a life before I got into wine yeah. and a pretty extensive life about not wine. And I was always interested in it and I always was passionate about it. And I always hated all the people who were in it. So I <laughs> <laughs> just tried not to be like them. That's yeah. kind of my goal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I kind of thought I had enough wine knowledge at least to fake my way through a short segment on my show called Wine Knowledge for Bartenders. I thought that until I tried to articulate it and then I realized, you know, I really don't know as much as I thought I did. <laughs> It's just very hard. You know, anybody that this is the other thing that I always try to tell people is that these people that are out there saying, oh, wine's so simple. It's so easy. Mm. Just drink what you like. Do this. Do that. It's not. It's not. I mean, there's a reason why the wine snob culture, why they could have created this insider outsider thing. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's not easy. It's very hard. It includes so many different things. It's geography. It's agriculture. It is, you know, yeah. sensory. There's so much, and and it's stylistic. It's cultural. It's it's crazy. There's a lot going on. So yes, it's very hard to explain, just at a basic level. And I think, you know, I mean, I guess that I can ask you a question about how much knowledge do you think bartenders have about wine in general? Well, it, and how much training do they get on it? It it's gonna totally totally depend on the um, on the venue. You know, there's such a wide range of, of bartenders from you know the local bar or dive bar to you know high end restaurants, of course. You know, so um, it, it's gonna vary totally dependent on the on the place, on the owner, on the managers, and um, but in general. Um, not a lot, you know, it's not, definitely not our focus, you know, I mean, we like, we like, uh, mixing up drinks, you know, we're like, uh, you know, a little this, a little that, you know, and, and pouring a glass of wine, you know, is, uh, a little on the boring side for me, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) I know it's funny because somebody had, um, I asked for questions from my listeners to see what they would like to hear about from you. And Uh one person said, do you think of us wine folk as silly purists, meaning a great cocktail is made from a few, if not many, ingredients, and we are always looking for singularity. We're looking for one thing. So <laughs> it must be pretty boring. I think it's interesting to some people to learn about wine, but I think a lot of people also find it a little tedious, right? Yeah, a bit and uh, a little bit. But to, I mean, to answer that question, I would in most cases say no. I mean, other than one of these high-end cocktail bars, you know, in Manhattan that's serving, you know, super craft cocktails and you know they're they have very extensive cocktail lists and they're you know they're definitely cocktail focused if you went in there and ordered a glass of wine you know but they're those bartenders are trained well enough in hospitality not to make anybody feel uh badly about their choice you know but i think that would be the only uh situation maybe where where someone might you know raise an eyebrow or something oh you're just having wine you know (laughs) yeah right you know i mean we we've created uh we have cocktails made with uh crushed bee wings and uh you know (laughs) And this uh, homemade uh, bitters that I made, it took uh, two two months to make and, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, talking about bars, they're charging $16 to $18 a cocktail, even $20 a cocktail, you know. And uh, and I mentioned to you in the email, maybe we'll talk a a little bit more about the craft cocktail movement later. But um, but, uh, in general, I don't, I don't, I would say no to that question. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. To answer that question. Um, Well, oh, I was just going to ask some like, really basic questions about wine for anybody who doesn't know, um, my listeners, like, uh, the difference between red wine, rosé wine and, and white wine, is it, is it, is, is it just the grape skins that, that color that, or is sometimes white wine made with red grapes and it just doesn't stay, um, with the grape skins? Yep. No, it's, it's a great question. So red wine always has to come from a grape that has some sort of color or pigment in the skin. If it doesn't, it can't have color. There are actually a couple of grapes that have colored juice, but it's very, very few. Most of them are getting it from the skins. And the Mm. other thing that they're getting from the skins are things at skins and seeds are the flavor of tannin. And, um, you know, some of the other flavors that you associate with the grapes come from grape skins. So Mm -hmm. that is all about the red wines. Then you've got rosé wines. Rosé wines are made through a process 
well, they're made, they can be made a, a couple different ways. First of all, they can be made through a process called saunier, which is where they just take, they put the grape skins all to, the grapes all together and the weight of the grapes will kind of crush them and the, the juice will be colored because it's been with the skins for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then they'll kind of bleed it off. So they'll, that's called Sanye blood, you know, bleeding. Okay. They'll take the color off. Uh, they'll take that colored juice off, just kind of like the first fresh press. And then from there, it, it they'll just make rosé wine out of it, which is basically made like white wine. And white wine can be made, you're exactly right, in two different ways. Mostly white wine is made from grapes that have no color in the skins. But right. if you get something like Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, which, by the way, is the same grape, mm-hmm. you will have a situation where the winemaker has to be pretty skilled because those grapes have colored oh. color in the skins. Actually, if you look at a, a cluster of Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, you'll see that some of the grapes are dark, some of them are pink, and some of them are white. They're all different colors together. And so the winemaker has to be pretty skilled in taking the the juice and making sure no skin contact happens. So they cannot have any color get in that. But occasionally you will see in a Pinot Gris or Pinot Gris a slight pink color. And that's because that's what color the grape is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's just, it might be slightly bronzy. It might be a little bit um, pink. So that's, that's from that. And then in champagne, just as an FYI, two champagne is a blend of three grapes it's it's pinot noir which is a red grape Mm. pinot munet which is also a red grape and chardonnay and they immediately need to take the grapes off of their skin so they don't have any contact with the skins immediately so that the so that the wine or the champagne becomes clear or or you know yellow isn't there a grape called the champagne grape (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't think there is a grape called oh, the champagne okay. <laughs> grape. There could be, I, I, but it's probably a hybrid, an American hybrid, but oh, there okay. is not a champagne grape that's used in champagne. Champagne's always a, either, it can be a single variety. It can be Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, or even Pinot Munet by itself, but it's always usually a blend of at least Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Okay. What I'd like to ask you is how, how can we help our guests choose a wine that they'll enjoy? Well, I think the most important thing is that you figure out what you like and then branch out from there. So one thing that I always say, which I know is, again, maybe a little controversial, is please do not only drink what you like, because <laughs> if we all ever only drank what we liked, we would never try anything else. Right. And wine is sort of like coffee or like beer. So when you first start drinking beer or coffee, a lot of times you're thinking, God, this is bitter. This is really terrible. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it. But then with with repeated exposure and trying different types, especially beer is is really like this, you might find a beer that you really like that you didn't know beer could even taste like that. Wine yeah. is exactly the same way. Mm. In order to find a wine that you like, I think you have to be pretty experimental. You've got to try a bunch of different things and not be afraid. I think the thing that I love about this generation of, of wine drinkers. And I, when I say this generation, I'm not talking about generation X or Y (laughs) or baby boomers. That's not what I mean. I mean about the people, the bulk of the wine drinkers now. And, and I feel like it's more of a psychological demographic than a, you know, 35 to 43 or whatever, whatever they, the, the wine companies love to, to do. You can't put people in a box like that. But what I love is that people are tending to be very experimental the caution that I would give people is that, you know, you need to you need to figure out, okay, fine. So if you're starting with sweet wine, you've got to slowly move. Most of the great wines of the world are dry. I mean, some of them are sweet also, but many of them are dry and it takes some time. So if you like sweet wines, just try to slowly progress into dry stuff. So, you know, move into maybe start with a, a high quality sweet Riesling from Germany and then maybe move into some more dry styles that are fruity Maybe try things from the new world. If you're not really experienced new world, it's everywhere except Europe. Yeah. California, Australia is a good place to start. Those kinds of wines tend to be very fruity and very easy to enjoy. And then your last stop on the train is places like France and some parts of Italy and some parts of Spain where things tend to get a little bit more complex and you get some earthy, dirty flavors. But in order to find a wine that you like, you need to start thinking about what it is that you like about the wine, and then try your best to put descriptors to it. Now, I'm not talking about, oh, that smells like damson flowers <laughs> yeah, and yeah. shrubby underbrush, blah, blah, right? That's, <laughs> that's, for, that's for us 
stupid winos. What, <laughs> <laughs> instead of instead of that, just think, hey, you know what? This tastes like fruit. Mm -hmm. It tastes like red fruit to me. It tastes like like berries. Okay, that's great. That's enough for you to go on. I really like wines that taste like berry. I like wines that kind of smell like black pepper or taste yeah. peppery. That's easy to identify. So things like that, you know, and, and I, the thing I always encourage people to do is that if you are interested in figuring out your vocabulary about wine, hit your spice cabinet because that's how you're going to find out about what things taste like. Right. Cool. Um, yeah, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about was like how to how to taste, how to, how to evaluate a wine. Well, that's, it's an important thing. And I think you can go about it any way that you want. There's a, definitely a method that we use in the wine world to evaluate wine. And it's, <laughs> it's in order. I, I one time had, had someone who was teaching a seminar say this, the way that you evaluate wine is in order from least scary and <laughs> offensive sense <laughs> to the most offensive sense. So like looking at a wine is not offensive at all, right? Like okay. you can look at it. Okay, so you should always look at your wine, by the way, because if you think about what wine is, it's the product of agriculture and then also chemical processing because fermentation happens through the action of yeast and, you know, it's a, it's a process, a biological process. So you need to look at your wine because things can go wrong in that process, there's a lot of steps in making wine. You should always look at your wine. There could be stuff floating in it. There could be, you never want to drink sediment. You want to get a filter if you have that, you know, the, yeah. the little. It doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. In fact, a lot of great wines have sediment in them, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. It's just a, a recombination of tannin, actually, is what we think that is. We, we're not actually 100% sure, but that's what mm. we think that is. They settle out to the bottom. Yeah, and, and it's perfectly suitable to drink that, but also white wines, if they are not what's called cold stabilized, where they kind of freeze the wine mm. to take out some particulate matter or some like little stuff in it, then you'll get crystals in the wine and they really? taste really disgusting. So, <laughs> but the wine is perfectly fine. So you don't huh. want to drink that either. So it's important to look. Yeah. And then the next offense, least offensive thing is to smell your wine okay. and you don't want to smell it like you smell uh, at the perfume counter. You don't want to kill your nose. So you just take little short sniffs and that's where you're getting your most information about the wine. Cause your mouth really doesn't do a whole lot. Your nose is where all the action yeah, is. So that's yeah. where you'll be able to start describing the wines. And then the only reason that your mouth can taste flavor, right? And that's the most, uh, again, going from least offensive to most offensive. The most offensive is putting it in your mouth and if it tastes horrible. <laughs> if, if it fails on the first two dimensions, it's a total fail. Do not put right. that in your mouth. Okay. <laughs> okay? But if it doesn't, if you think it's like going to be okay, if it doesn't smell funny or bad or like wet dog, that would mean that it mm. was corked or, mm. you know, whatever else, then you could taste it. And then you're getting closer and closer to the smell receptors in your brain. And that's when you can really describe the flavors. And then that's when your mouth will kick in and give you some textures to think about acidity, which is when underneath your tongue waters, tannin, which is that feeling like, you just ate a bunch of Cheerios and have no milk and your mouth is really dry mm -hmm. um, or it's that sucky thing at the dentist, whatever, you know, and then, and then really the most important thing is your evaluation of it. You know, what, what is it that you liked about it or didn't like about it? Or is it good even if you don't like it? You know, is it a good wine? Is it balanced? Mm -hmm. Does it do all the components? You don't have to like a wine for it to be good. That's important to know. Are we going to listen to our wine next? <laughs> and touch no, it. you don't. You know that's the only thing that you don't have to do. You I, don't have to listen to. I, you only have to listen to the podcast about wine. Right? Or <laughs> oh, plug, for, plug for wine for normal people, right? <laughs> right. Um, I did. Yeah. A, I did a thing about that once on my show, saying that uh, you know, really use all five senses when you walk into a bar, you know, and you're tasting that drink. But all five senses are involved. You know, the you know, obviously the three that you just mentioned, but um, the the music and the sound is you know that's part of the experience as well. And uh, and touch well. I don't know if your glasses. Well, touches your mouth. Your mouth is <laughs> yeah. really that. Your mouth is the tactile thing because your your nose does all of the what we think of as flavor, but your mouth does texture. Mm. So your mouth says, okay, that's acidic or that's dry or sweet or whatever. So that's the, we we got the tactile there too. Yeah, actually, actually, can you talk uh, quickly about the five things that the tongue does? Yeah, your tongue is. I call it the big lug because it doesn't do a whole lot. <laughs> this is like 10th grade biology. Yeah. Since you grew up in New York and you probably had to take the stupid regents, yep. did you have to take those? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. So you did 10th grade biology, unless you were a nerd, and then you did 9th grade. No, I think Um, I failed the biology regents, actually. (laughs) Nice. Nice job. Um, All right. So let me give you the refresher on it if you were sleeping through that one. (laughs) (laughs) On the tongue, your tongue does sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and what's called umami or savory, and that's butter. That's like butter or richness. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, those are the only things that your tongue can do. Now your mouth does a little bit more because of the reactions with your with certain parts of your mouth. Like your salivary glands are activated by acid. So if you think about a lemon right now as you're listening to this, your mouth might start to water. Yeah. And when you have a lemon in front of you, your mouth will water and water, water. And that is because of the salivary glands. So you have a response to that. But your tongue really doesn't do much beyond that and your whole mouth. So... When you're feeling sensations or those five five things, wine generally has almost all of them except salty. Salty is not something that's in wine, but it is in cocktails for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that all applies to tasting, you know, whatever, whether it's whiskey or rum or food or soda. <laughs> Completely. Just, well, yeah. you know, the funny thing about soda is soda has a ton of sugar in it, but it also is incredibly acidic. Did mm. you know that? No. Yeah, it's very high in acid. So it's funny that people who drink a lot of soda sometimes say, I don't like acidic wines. You don't like sweet wines. Well, probably not. You probably really do like acidic wines because soda is super acidic. But it's just overpowered by the sweetness so much you don't really realize it? It's the sweetness. It's the effervescence. I think that that's the the thing about uh, champagne, too, or sparkling wine that people really like is it's the bubbles. They don't even notice how acidic it is, but it's highly Mm. acidic. Mm -hmm. It's very lively, as we call it. Yeah. Very briefly, like in one sentence each, how would you describe the difference between Cabernet Merlot and Pinot Noir? Like, you know, because those are the three basics that you'll find in a bar. Every bar will have, you know, those three. So if somebody, uh, you know, came up and said, uh, what kind of wine do you have? You name those three. Oh, what's the difference? Well, I really like that you listed them in that order because you went from boldest to what is normally lightest. Now, styles of Pinot Noir vary enormously, so I can't really give you the one-liner on that. Mm -hmm. What I can tell you is that Pinot Noir is the red grape of Burgundy, and there it tends to have a lot of different flavors and layers, be very earthy, but tends to have a lot of red berry flavors, floral flavors, spice flavors. In California, you're going to get a lot more red fruit. Again, red cherry, red strawberry, and it tends to be a little bit high acid. Pinot Noir is often called the chef's wine. It's very good with food because Mm. it tends to be kind of moderate. Merlot gets a bad rap, but I think it's roaring back. I think it's coming back. (laughs) Merlot is smooth and delicious. It sort of rolls around your mouth. It has a medium acid content. It's kind of medium on the mouth drying tannin, so it's excellent with food also. Richer fruit, more like black cherry, black plum, and and it can also have red fruit. They call Merlot the feminine, a, a feminine grape. They call Pinot Noir a feminine grape, too. I think it's highly sexist, of course. <laughs> but it does tend to be softer, right. and it tends to be a little bit higher in alcohol than the thing that it's often blended which, with, which is Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon is the king of the reds. Right. It's very bold, very strong, and oftentimes it needs a little bit of Merlot, which it's blended with. It's never blended with Pinot Noir, but it's blended with Merlot to soften it a little bit because mm. it has very harsh mouth drying tannins. It can be very dark in color and it's not as soft as Merlot. It's it's extremely rough and tumble. Right. I would say Cabernet has, from the New World, from California, from everywhere that's not um, Europe, it tends to be very fruity also, which people like but it has to be balanced against the texture. If you don't like mouth drying tannins or high acidity, that's probably not the wine for you. However, given its high tannin content, great with meat. Very, yeah. very good with with red meat or with meaty foods. A lot of people are vegetarians these days, so mm. portobello mushrooms, eggplant, anything grilled, that grilled flavor. You're always looking for, when you're doing food and wine pairing, you're really looking at both the the weight of the whatever you're putting the food on, but really the sauce and the spice is much more important in my opinion. Mm, Yeah, of course, I need to ask you about wine pairings and uh, what, you know, just very basic general guidelines on on making that uh, successful and easy. (laughs) Yeah, well, I have three rules that I think that people should can think about. I mean, the the first thing is what I just said, you've got to think about the texture or the weight of the food. You that's that's pretty easy to do. I mean, if somebody's ordering a salad, you mm. know that that's fairly light unless there's something really heavy in it. And 
then, you know, so, so, you know, fish generally tends to go with lighter reds or whites and, um, you know, steak tends to go with really heavy foods. However, the things that can make everything change is what's the final flavor in your mouth? What about the side dishes that are on that plate? Mm. What is the overpowering and overriding thing that after you take a bite of that food, that's what's there because you don't normally stick a piece of food in your mouth and then put wa- put uh, <laughs> wine in at the same time, right? <laughs> you finish chewing and then you take a sip. So you have to really think about what that lasting... Impro- I mean, I don't know many people... That, do you know anybody that does that? that like drinks while they're eating? <laughs> no, no. It's kind of nasty, right? Like <laughs> yeah. you know, water, like it'll be like whiny. Yeah. So, so really you need to think about what's the final flavor in your mouth because that's what you're pairing with. Mm. And so that's very, very important. Now, of course, you know, there'll be protein elements and all that kind of stuff with with the butter, you know, butter and the sauce. But think about sauces and think about sides. Because if you've got something with a very strong garlic component, for instance, on the dish, on the plate, and then you have a filet, which is fairly simple, you might want to pair something that goes pretty well with that garlic because that's going to be, and and whatever it's on top of, because that's going to be important. That's going to be the strongest flavor on the plate, yeah. 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 And then, you know, you you really have to decide who is the star of the show here. You have to decide whether the wine is the star or or the food is the star Mm -hmm. and, and give each its equal weight or bearing. Yeah. I like that thinking about the texture. I, I never thought of it that way before, but that's uh, that, that's a big help, actually. I like that. Good. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a silly question. Other than tradition, why is white wine chilled but not red? Well, some red wine actually is chilled, mm-hmm. but let's be clear, okay? All wine generally in a bar or restaurant is not served at the right temperature, yeah. except if it's a really high-end one, right? Yeah. So. White wine, it's fresher, right? There are different things that you look for in white versus red. In white wines, the colder temperature helps the wine um, be more acidic and bright. So that's what you're looking for, refreshing. Okay. Uh-huh. And so at those cooler temperatures, that white wine is much more refreshing. So it, it all goes together. And it it mutes some of the bitter aromas sometimes, especially in cheap wine. You want that very, very cold, as cold as possible. But even in, in high-quality white wine, you know, you want it to be a little bit cooler so the acidity tastes refreshing. However, you know, high-end high end Chardonnay, for instance, something from Burgundy, a, a white Chardonnay, a, a white Burgundy, rather, which is, which is Chardonnay, you're going to serve that almost at red wine temperature, not at, at mm. Cabernet temperature, but probably at around 50 or 55 degrees. Oh, yeah? Huh. Yeah, because it's full-bodied and rich. Same with white Rhone. You're going you're gonna to want to have that at, at much warmer temperatures than what we're used to having white wine at because that has so many aromas and so much complexity that you want it to be able to really express that, and you don't want to mute it at all with chilling it down. Now, there are some red wines that are delicious when they're, they have a little bit of a chill in them, and I'm thinking about... Some, you know, Beaujolais mm-hmm. Village, not Beaujolais yeah. Nouveau. Beaujolais Nouveau is, is a ugh, yuck <laughs> wine. But Beaujolais also makes wonderful wines out of this grape called the Gamay grape. And it is so tasty. I wish more people drank it. Mm. It just, it tastes like flowers and it tastes like red fruit. And it's very soft. It goes great with food. That That's delicious. Some Cote de Rhone are very nice with a chill on them. Mm. So lighter reds, sometimes even some Pinot Noir can take a chill. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you can definitely do that. And the red wines, you want them to be slightly warmer. Of course, never as warm as they probably usually are, especially, I'm thinking especially in hotel bars where it's like 75 degrees. Mm. Those, ugh, yuck. You know, oftentimes you want those, you or you always want those wines a little bit warmer because those have a lot of complex aromas. They need air. They need to be, they need a lot of, um, as much air as possible and as much opportunity to express their aroma as possible. So a little bit warmer temperature will allow them that ability. Like I said, when you chill something down, it kind of mutes the aroma. So warming it up is going to, or letting it come out of the fridge or wine fridge a little bit early so that the wine can warm up a bit is, is never a bad thing with reds. Yeah. So just to clarify what you said, normally red wines will be stored at a uh, at room temperature in most bars and restaurants, which is a little too warm, and <laughs> most white wines will be stored, you know, along with the beer, which is a little too cold. You got it. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. All right. 
Yeah, it's a little disappointing, but I mean, what are you going to do when, if wine is not a huge priority at your restaurant? Yeah. I mean, that's your choice really. But I do think that it would be better if bartenders stored red wine in the fridge and took it out when they started the shift. But that's just Hmm. me. Yeah. I was a bartender for a while, so I understand oh, okay. how this goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I took the Harvard bar course. Come on. What? <laughs> Did you know about that? No. Oh, it's hilarious. So I lived in Boston, and I actually, as part of my, what I say, my yada yada years, I actually moved <laughs> I moved from Boston and my corporate job to uh, St. John and became a bartender and waitress. Nice. So, yeah, I, I, in order to prepare myself for that, I took the Harvard bar course, which is Harvard <laughs> offers a bartending course. No way. Yes, well, it's hilarious. Is it any good? <laughs> Actually, it was really good. It was fun. <laughs> it's just a one-day course, or maybe it's a two-day. I think it's over the course of a weekend, but a lot of people take it up there. <laughs> they should put it online. <laughs> yeah, they should, although, I mean, part of the fun is playing with all the stuff, you know, that you've yeah. never played with before, all the... They're like, yeah. this is a jigger. Here's a pony. Here's this. Here's that. Yeah. So I learned. Yeah, I learned fun. my cocktails. Cool. Well, I, I did that once too. I, mo- I moved to Hawaii and bartended for a while. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're not so different here. Nah, nope. Not at all. <laughs> uh, you know what? I did actually have a question from a listener that they asked if, are there any cocktails that are kind of neutral? They won't screw up your palate before the meal. You know, cocktails tend to be so sweet or so strong. Is there anything that's kind of refreshing that you can think of that won't make your, before the meal, like have that cocktail just stick around forever? What do you recommend people drink? Uh, well, first of all, I'll drink cocktails with my meal a lot of times. So. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> I'm no probably the wrong person to uh, ask. No, um, I don't know. Well, a, a martini comes to mind immediately because uh, that's a little bit on the neutral side. Of course, we like gin martinis, not vodka martinis. With well, you. if you like, if you like them, that's fine. But the, they're not traditional. You know, gin, gin martinis are um, superior in my opinion and a lot of Mine people's too. opinions. And uh, I think you and I both are all about trying to elevate people's palates. Um, I mean, it, it, it's an aperitif, you know, it's meant to kind of stimulate your mouth and, and get you ready to eat. And, uh, you know, you talked about salivating and all that. And there's a lot of, uh, I love a Negroni, which is very mm. bitter. It's made with Campari and, uh, and sweet vermouth and gin. And, uh, but it's very, very bitter and it's, and talk about acquired tastes, you know, it takes, it takes a while to get it, but once you get it, you can't get enough, but it, you know, it, it stimulates your Palate, yeah. Your your palate or your yeah. your, gla- your glands salivary or salivary salivary glands, and uh, you know gets you ready to eat. You know, and, yeah. Well, what uh, about like wine cocktails? I know there's a lot of. Are there any good wine cocktails? Or my just- favorite is the New York sour. It's uh, what's that? It's a, it's a whiskey sour, and of course, uh, I like to use not sour mix from a soda gun because that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the proper way to make sour mix is simple syrup and fresh lemon juice. Mm-hmm. Um, simple syrup, of course, half sugar and half water. So you make the whiskey sour with the fresh sour mix and float a little red wine on top, and it's it's good. So do you think that if you used good wine in the cocktail, it would make any difference, or is it really all about the quality of the liquor for these wine cocktails? You know, it can't hurt to use good stuff. Um, I think. It's going to be definitely dominated by the whiskey and the lemon flavors, and it's you know there's a sweetness there. So um, you know I would kind of a waste, isn't it, to use really yeah, good wine in there? <laughs> but it, it does add a nice uh, a nice flavor to it, and, and it's a great presentation. So that's that's the most fun part about it. That's awesome. Uh, what other wine? Are there any other wine cocktails that are hot right now? Not so much. You know, they're never uh, that popular because wine doesn't you know, taste that good with liquor. No, and the know, wine companies I mean, are always trying to get mixologists to to make wine cocktails so they can be incorporated into the bar scene. But I think it's absurd. Yeah, it doesn't really work. I mean, you know, sangria of course will be around forever, but other than that, they it, yeah, it just doesn't work. It's not appealing. I, I don't know. It doesn't taste very good. <laughs> the ones that seem know? to work best are just riffs on sangria. All right, so I have a question for you, or whether you've ever heard this before. Have you ever heard of anybody faking, like somebody ordering a rosé? And then someone <laughs> going behind the bar and pouring in red and sweet, red and white I have, together. Have you ever no, seen it? I've never witnessed that. I've have you heard, heard of rumor. it? I've heard, I've heard of it. <laughs> so people do do that. It, I mean, I, I've never had any personal knowledge of it. I've, you know, I, I, I don't know anyone who's actually done that. <laughs> okay. So we can say that that myth is busted. Maybe. I, I don't know Jury's if I go out. that far. <laughs> <gasps> Jury's out on that. That's good. <laughs> What about like 
wines. How annoying is it for a bartender to have someone ask for a sample if there's by the glass? You know, if it's oh, if it's, it's not a problem. It, it's not it, a problem, right? No, no. It's, How many and, samples before you get annoyed? Two, right? Two, three is pushing it. You know, but uh, make a decision. <laughs> yeah, and then your tastes are going to get smaller and smaller every time. <laughs> but I have no problem with it. And uh, as a bar manager, I encourage bartenders to do that. You know, it's very popular with craft beers now too. So people, people expect it. Oh, that's good for people to know. Cause I think I am always astonished. So when I do public speaking events, I often try to bring that point up no matter what I'm doing, because mm. I know I ask people, how many people ask for samples when you go to a restaurant or a bar and you would be shocked at how few people ask they're afraid yeah, yeah. and so what do you have to say to those people say it now <laughs> don't be afraid it's fine it's you shouldn't you shouldn't i guess i mean come to think of it i don't do it that often myself <laughs> but don't the, you think you should i mean if you're gonna yeah. order a glass of wine and pay 10 bucks for or 15 bucks for a glass of wine you gotta taste yeah. it a little bit and it's no skin off your nose as a bar i mean if it's already open or if something being poured by the glass it's already right. open exactly and let's face it so speaking of this so can you explain? I know this the answer to this question, but I would like you to explain how pricing wine works in a restaurant. Uh, are well, you afraid? Or you don't want to say it? Well, I mean, it's marked up, you know, pretty heavily, and uh, you know, bottles but, are better you, deals than glasses, right? In most cases, yes. When we price a cocktail or beer or or wine, the the proportion is a little different. But but let's say with a cocktail, we we try to keep the um, pour cost at. 20 to 23 percent is high you know if, if we're charging ten dollars it shouldn't cost us more than two dollars to make it and people are like that that markup's outrageous i can't believe you know you would do that but you know that's before you turn on the lights you've paid the rent well you're going out for an experience too and i think people do understand that yeah i think wine is a little funny because most in my experience at least in going around the country because i worked for a large winery and did a lot of looking at what was going on in restaurants, mm -hmm. especially because I did restaurant training programs and stuff. It's usually that wines that are poured by the glass, especially at the base tier, they have, you have to charge the price that they paid for the bottle is the price of the glass of wine. Right. So if you're getting five portions out of the bottle, that's the 20% I was talking about. Right. So, so if it makes you, if you're listening to this and you don't ask for samples, understand that they've already made the money back on the first glass that they sold. Yeah, but they haven't paid the rent or the chef or <laughs> I'm not telling people that they should go nuts with the samples. No. I'm just saying a half an ounce of wine is not going to break the bank, right? Yeah, exactly. No, that's totally true. I And it's part of service. Exactly. Yeah, it's part of hospitality. Yep, absolutely. So this is the big question that I think everybody really wants to know about the bar scene. How long does the wine stick around before it's chucked if it's sold by the glass? Like, and do the bartenders ever try it or do they just kind of pour it and hope it's still good? Do they even know what to look for? And how many, how many days do they leave a red by the glass around compared to a white by the glass after opening? Can you shed any light on this? This is like the big, big question everybody has. Well, again, it depends on the venue and it depends on the management. And uh, I don't think the... Bartenders really, um, if they think they're going to get in trouble for throwing it away, they're not going to do it. And if they think they uh, are supposed to, they, you know, it's like you say, it's no skin off their nose either way. You know, but uh, as a manager, you know, I hate to see anything thrown away. You know, I mean, uh, as a manager, I'm, I'm reporting my poor costs for the week um, to the owner. You know, mm -hmm. every week and every anything that's thrown away or wasted or spilled or sent back, you know, makes the manager look bad because it, it increases that overall pour cost. You know, what we do is you take the uh, beginning inventory or the end, ending inventory for the previous week, add any purchases, and then subtract the ending inventory. Uh, and that tells you exactly how much was spent on liquor. You know, not, not how much in theory that thing costs, like I was talking about earlier. In theory, we want our cocktail to price out at 20%. No, this um, is actual. This is totally... 100%, you know, if, if the bartender's stealing or drinking or anything like that, this, you know, factors into that. So the to, so to, <laughs> point is to throw anything down the drain is, is hard. <laughs> so um, what's the point at which you do throw it down the drain? Do you taste it? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll taste it after. Um, really, it should be, it should be um, labeled, you know, when you, the day it's opened. Um, not too many places do that, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to say I've never heard of that happening. <laughs> I try to do it. 
just like I try to label my boxes of beer as they come in so I know how when they were delivered, but uh, it's hard to get everybody to follow that. And the bartenders, I feel like a lot in a lot of places, I'm not talking about the real high end because that's really only yeah. like maybe the top five or 10% of restaurants where yeah. the bartenders would actually sit there and taste through all the wines by the glass to make sure they're fine. But yeah. I would say in 85 to 90% of restaurants that are out there, most people don't even taste it, right? No. I mean, they're just waiting for the manager to make the call yeah. and, or a customer to complain, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty so if the much. customer complains, what do you do? Well, then... Do you open a new one? Oh, definitely, yeah. So Absolutely. what about it? What about if a customer orders a bottle and says the wine is corked? What does the bartender do? You just got to... You got to... You got to take it back. I mean, you know, you're going to, you got to eat that cost, you know, if, if they're going to tell you there's something wrong with it, you know, it's very hard to argue that point with them. Do you taste it? And then if it's not, I, I've been in some places before where they said that there was a high maintenance customer who said the wine was corked, said the wine was corked. They tasted it, didn't think it was corked and then poured it by the glass. Yeah. Oh yeah. I could, I would do that. <laughs> but <laughs> so, but do you know but. whether or not a wine, do you know what it tastes like if a wine is yeah. corked or do you think most bartenders know or do you think most no, managers probably. know? I, I would say not most. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, so they'll I, most, I do, li- most likely they'll just take the wine and throw it out or return it back to the yeah, distributor. Yeah, the suppliers right? are pretty good about stuff like that. You can get a bottle for bottle, right? Yep, yep, definitely. Yeah. That seems to be happening less and less, right? I mean, there's less oh, yeah. of corked wines going on these days. Uh, Cleaner wineries. That's that's what it is. Oh, okay. A wine under screw cap or with fake cork can also experience cork taint. It's less common, mm. but it can mm-hmm. because once the TCA, the, the bacteria that's responsible for cork taint or that wet newspaper, wet wool, wet dog, yeah. musty basement flavor in wine. Yeah. Once it gets into the winery, it can get into the wine. And so it, there are some instances where screw cap, wines under screw cap can have it. But all in all, under, whether it's under cork closure or screw cap or fake cork or whatever the closure is, the incidence of cork taint seems to be decreasing because there's better hygiene. And right. that's really what the, the difference is, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we, well, we were talking about how long the wine stays open in the bar. Uh, there's a new trend now with wine on tap. What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I've seen that. I think it's a great idea. So yeah. here's the thing that I would love to see for bars. Having worked at a bar and been a bartender and having been on the wine side and then also having done on-premise marketing, it would be awesome if every bar could get either mini kegs or kegs of wine or do bag and box. And if the wineries would oblige, you know, they would do this for, for better wines because the problem with bag and box is that it's an excellent preservation system, but because of Franzia, nobody really wants it. Yeah. And we feel like it's not good. Now in other countries, it's much more popular. Like I went to South Africa a number of years ago and people drink wine out of the box all the time, and it's good. Mm. It's totally mm-hmm. good. So yeah. I think the problem is that there's just a stigma, and we like our wine coming out of a bottle and being closed with cork, and now screw cap too. What I would love to see is most wines at a bar being coming out, either out of a keg or out of a box with a spigot, because in that case, your hit rate of having fresh wine is going to be a lot better. You will have yeah. fresher wine almost all the time. The keg is a great preservation system. There's no reason for that. For high-end wines, I'm not a fan of that. But for mm. everyday drinking wines, and especially for white wines, I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And it's, it costs a little less, you know, per glass for Absolutely. us to pour it. And it's um, it's it's actually a nice there's, – there's a new place that opened near me that has uh, – I think six wines or eight wines on tap, and it's and, and they're they're good quality wines, and it's a nice presentation. They you know they'll, they'll give you a little uh, tiny little carafe, and uh, mm-hmm. it makes you know it's a beautiful tap system, and it's I think it's awesome. It's very cool. the The problem is that on the wine side, everyone is set up for bottling. Yeah. And and so when you have to move into a keg system, you have to figure out how you're going to fill the kegs. You have to have customers. You have to pre-sell it. You can't yeah. just make kegs and hope that you sell them. You have to pre-sell mm. it. You mm-hmm. have to have customers waiting for that. So we also have a place that does wine by the keg, and I think it's a great idea, but I don't know how – it hasn't really caught on because it's a, it's a very difficult – for the most part, wineries sell either through their wine club if they're smaller or they sell through retail, and those that's not an appropriate venue for, for a 
wine on tap. So, you know, it's, it's hard for them. Only a select number of wineries are really going to be able to do this yeah. on an ongoing basis just because that's not how people consume wine. And right. I don't know that it will ever really change to a point where unless you have a really big, a, a big enough brand, critical mass, enough orders, you, you're not going to see it be something yeah. ubiquitous, I don't think. No, no. But, but it's uh, cool. It, yeah, it's cool, and it works in a lot of venues. And uh, I guess I guess to backtrack a little, I should have asked you, uh, when we were talking about how long does the wine stay open, how long is ideal? It really depends on the wine, and it does have to – it's something that needs to be tasted frequently. So yeah. for the whites, when that acidity starts to die, mm. and, and it really does depend on, on the white. It depends on the quality of the white. It depends on – well, some of it depends on the transportation storage before it even arrives at your restaurant. Oh, wow. And that's really a big problem because you don't know where it's been. You don't know if the distributor stored it correctly, if, you know, what's happened in transit. However, again, another reason why it's important to smell and look at your wine and all that kind of stuff. But I think that white wines, their shelf life is not very long. I, yeah. I would say generally after two or three days, you're losing that fresh acidity and they're starting to get very flat. And as yeah. soon as that goes and the flavor just tastes like nothing, then it's, it's time to yeah. stop that. Now, a wine like a Riesling will keep that for longer because a Riesling is a very high acid grape. It's very aromatic, but even that after three days is going to be done. Red wine can last longer, but something like... I found, for instance, the mid-tier Malbecs, which are delicious and lots of people like them and you can pour them by the glass and people will order them. They don't last but more than two days before, mm. again, you get that flatness. I mean, it, Flab, once you Flabby, would you say? Yeah, flabby. I mean, once you recognize what that is, meaning it doesn't taste fresh anymore. Yeah. It doesn't taste, there's not a whole lot going on. It just kind of sits in your mouth, almost oh. like a flat soda. I could just imagine, just you describing it, I can totally imagine it, you know, yeah, past experiences drinking wine like that. Right. <laughs> and so this is the really interesting thing about, about wine. And I, I would highly encourage you if you do have a buy the bottle program that maybe you do think about putting your red wines, not on ice, but definitely um, if you can put a cold pack near them, something like that, they will stay fresher a little bit longer mm -hmm. because, you know, the bar back, the back of a bar can get hot because you've got the, you know, you've got a sink yeah. back there. You've got a lot of people, especially if it gets jam packed. Oh, you have, a, you have your beer fridge a lot of time on right under the bar. So. Yeah. I mean, that's a real problem for wine, right? So your reds deserve to be stuck in the fridge at the end of the night for sure. Hmm. And I think that that will help keep them fresher for your customer. But you also do need to taste them every day if, yeah. if you want to be kind to your wine customer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's important because you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this mouthful. I think the oh. best the best analogy, if you don't know what I mean, Brian, you know what I'm talking about. But yeah. if if someone's listening to this and they don't know what I'm talking about, think about a flat soda. Mm -hmm. It's That's really the best analogy that I can come up with because wine, when you first open it, is is alive. It has a lot of lively flavors. But I know this is very wine dorky, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I hope people aren't like, wow, this girl, <laughs> this, this lady is really out there. But wine is kind of alive. Mm-hmm. It does evolve. It changes. That's why people can age wine. Now, only the, you know, the top 1% or 2% of wines can actually age for any long period of time. But the reason that wine can stay around for even three or five years, which is how long most wines can age before they get really bad, is that it's alive. It's, it's a bunch of chemical compounds that change inside the bottle and evolve. In, in very good wines, they evolve very in, into very interesting things, but we're not always necessarily sure what's changing and what's, I mean, scientists are trying to study this. I honestly couldn't care less because <laughs> I just care that it does change and that it's interesting and fascinating. But you have to understand once you open that bottle and the wine starts interacting with oxygen, that things are going to change and they're going to change pretty fast. Right. And right. that is where you get that flat changing thing. So it's, it won't be the same on day one, day two, or day three. Sometimes it'll be better. Your red wines usually will get better um, unless they're super cheap, like your bottom tier, like your Copper Ridge or Sycamore <laughs> Creek or whatever that stuff is. That's not going to get better. But your better pours by the glass will sometimes get better on day two. But 
when you're starting to get around day three or day four, I don't know. I mean, I think it makes sense to have a silver Sharpie and write it on, yeah. the, on the outside of your bottle the day that you opened it and just, you know, start yeah, to taste it. Really it really does. Yep, yep. Well, you, you, did a, um, you did an entire podcast about this, and everybody should listen to it. But uh, can you briefly explain what makes a quality wine or an expensive, you know, what makes it ex- expensive and what makes it good? The quality of the grapes and the place that the grapes grow is the single most important component in making a good wine. So if your grapes are growing in a place that's outstanding and is better than another place, then it is going to taste better unless the winemaker completely messes it up and does something terrible. But (laughs) there is a tangible difference. There's a certain sense of balance. And all it is is it's just experience and tasting and tasting and tasting. And, you know, with time you get to notice that, wow, that's got a lot of different crazy things going on if you really pay attention to it that maybe you don't notice at first. And that's the difference between usually these expensive wines and wines that are simpler. And there's a place for all of it. You know, it's not like, except maybe two buck chuck. (laughs) That's your favorite, isn't it? But it's, it's funny. We talk, you know, when we make cocktails, we talk about balancing the sweet, the sour and the spirit. And, uh, that's important with wine too. You like you say the balance is so important, but then you have a fourth thing with this, which is the tannin, right? Yeah, the tannin is that mouth drying quality that is really in red wine. Sometimes it's in white wines, in Chardonnays and Viognier's and Chenin Blancs that are oaked because there's oak tannin, and then there's also grape tannin. But it's this sort of bitter astringency, and it is another you know kind of piece of the picture frame because we've got we've got sugar, we've got acid. We've got tannin and and, um, and alcohol, you know. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, just like a cocktail, have to be balanced. And, it, and if, if anything is out of balance, if anything is, is too strong, it doesn't taste good. And right. I think the cocktail is the same way. Yep, exactly. That was great. We're already at almost an hour here which is long for one of my podcasts. But Elizabeth and I, we kept talking and had a great conversation. And if you want to hear the rest of that, please go to bartenderjourney.net and I'll try to post up the full-length interview and learn some more about wine. I learned so much there. And uh, there's just always more to learn, whether it's wine or spirits, about hospitality. I have a book here that I haven't started yet, but it's uh, the kind of definitive book about hospitality called Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. So uh, I'm going to dive into that one when I have time. I'm surrounded by books here in my in my studio. There's books everywhere. <laughs> I don't know how I'm ever going to read them all, but it's all about constant and never-ending improvement. All right, this has been Bartender Journey. Remember, go to the website, bartenderjourney.net, and help support the show. You can click on uh, the Tip Cup page to support the show. Leave a tip, and you can buy books. You can also buy spirits through Flavar and save $10 clicking through that link. And if you want to learn a lot about bartending, click through and check out A Bar Above. It's a great online course from my friend Chris Tunstall, and you will learn a lot. It's a very in-depth course about bartending and cocktails. All right, well, thanks again for listening to the Bartender Journey Podcast. Cheers!